Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from outside number 10 Downing Street, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. It's decision day on Capitol Hill. Just a few senators will make or break the Democrats' case for witnesses, which could end in President Trump's acquittal. Coronavirus contagion cases confirmed in the UK as the WHO declares a global emergency and Brexit gets done. The UK finally leaves the EU today. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, coming to you from London, live from Number 10 Downing Street, as I mentioned. This is unique. It is 31st of January, and it's official Brexit day. The UK and the EU are set to go their own way, to paraphrase a pretty famous song. A day of celebration, of course, for some, commiseration for others. Plenty more to discuss on this later on in the show. But for now, a look, as always, at what we're seeing for market action. And I tell you what, they remain pretty unsettled at this stage. Investors, I think, continuing to juggle the potential coronavirus impact with what's been another quite nice batch of corporate earnings, I have to say. US futures, if we give you a look at those, are looking pretty soft here following a weaker European session too. Asian shares also finishing pretty mixed in the session. The Nikkei rising 1%. But if you take a look at Hong Kong shares, they shed another half a percent. The Hang Seng, in fact, dropping some 5.5% in the last five sessions. It's down near 10% over the past two weeks. I think the real test for Asia, though, is going to come next week when Chinese stock markets reopen following the Lunar New Year holiday. That will be a real gauge of sentiment. But if you take a look at what we saw in price action yesterday, U.S. stocks actually ended higher. A relief rally, I think, after the WHO decided not to restrict trade or travel in line with their broader assessment here of a global health emergency. What about earnings, though? Amazon, simply phenomenal. If you take a look at what we got there, the firm's market cap has now risen above $1 trillion again. There are many market positives, I think, to pull out here, but investors are also keeping a close eye on what we're seeing all around the world, including what's going on in Capitol Hill. Let's get right to the drivers because we begin today's show there. The impeachment trial against President Trump could end today with his acquittal. The Senate is set to vote on witnesses later this afternoon, but it appears that Democrats simply don't have enough votes to subpoena witnesses. If the motion fails, Republicans could call a vote to acquit the president as early as tonight. Lauren Fox is on Capitol Hill with the latest. Well, Julia, it was only a couple of months ago, four months to be precise, that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, announced that she was opening an impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. Now we are just hours away from that crucial vote on whether or not President Trump will be removed from office. Senate Democrats hopes to introduce witnesses into President Trump's impeachment trial seemingly dashed thanks to a late-night announcement from key Republican Senator Lamar Alexander. 
I'm deeply disappointed in it. I I, um, I think that it makes that makes it uh, likely that the that the Senate may have it the first impeachment trial in history uh, that have no witnesses at all. The Tennessee lawmaker releasing a statement announcing he will vote against this afternoon's motion to consider additional evidence and witnesses. Alexander writing, quote, it was inappropriate for the president to ask a foreign leader to investigate his political opponent and to withhold United States aid to encourage that investigation. But adding the Constitution does not give the Senate the power to remove the president from office and ban him from this year's ballot simply for actions that are inappropriate. I think with this announcement, the chances of additional witnesses now has has plummeted. And I think we are likely to move on Saturday to final judgment at the, at the end of which the president will be acquitted. Overnight, Senator Susan Collins announced she's already made her decision, saying she'll vote yes because, quote, I believe hearing from certain witnesses would give each side the opportunity to more fully and fairly make their case. It's still unclear if Republican Senators Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski will join her. Their support would push the Senate to a 50-50 tie. Democrats growing increasingly frustrated by their GOP colleagues. He has been let off the hook by the Republicans who are not going to vote for his conviction, but he is not going to be set free by the, the American people, I hope, who get that this was not a fair trial. Julia, we expect that vote on witnesses to happen around 5 or 6 o'clock tonight. We're still waiting to see what Lisa Murkowski does, but if she votes in support of witnesses, that would put the Senate at a 50-50 tie. We don't expect that Chief Justice John Roberts would break that tie, even though he could. Therefore, we expect that the vote on witnesses will fail, and leadership has said that they will move swiftly to acquit the president soon after. Julia? Lauren Fox speaking there. All right, let's move on to our next driver, the coronavirus outbreak. Let me give you uh, an update on what we know so far. The UK confirmed its first cases earlier today. The World Health Organization, in the meantime, has declared a global health emergency. China has reported more than 9,000 cases and over 200 deaths. The United States also disclosing its first case of human-to-human transmission on Thursday, too. And countries across the globe are repatriating their citizens. David Culver is in Beijing for us. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us also from the CNN Center. David, I'm coming to you first on this just to give us an update. The World Health Organization choosing to say this is a global health emergency now, but very importantly, I think here too, saying that they weren't going to suggest trade or travel restrictions. And once again, lauding China, I think, for the speed of the response that they've had there. Talk us through what we're seeing in, in Beijing and what we've seen throughout the day. And Julia, it's interesting that you point out that aspect that WHO has suggested against the trade and travel restrictions, because that is exactly what state media is using here and putting out as a message to the world, really. And now with the WHO giving this designation of a public health emergency, uh, I won't go into detail, let Sanjay go into detail on that, but I'll tell you the implications are something that we're seeing play out globally because you're starting to see more and more airlines either cut off or cut back some of their flights to and from mainland China. And we're seeing more and more countries strengthen their borders and really prevent mainland Chinese uh, tourists from coming in. But not only Chinese tourists, in fact, in Singapore, they're saying any foreign traveler who has gone through mainland China 
cannot come in for a certain period of time. That's the kind of stringent uh, restrictions they're putting in place right now. Meantime, we do know that uh, the WHO's ruling is something that China is really trying to push out against, and, and they're hoping that eventually their containment effort will be enough to overcome that. And this containment effort is one that's stepping up. It's got the two hospitals that are rapidly under construction right now, and they've been pushing that quite strongly on state media as well. In fact, the broadcaster CCTV, the main flagship news organization here, uh, the state media, they are putting out several of these images showing these hospitals going up. They're also showing the deployment of thousands of personnel into the epicenter of all of this, Hubei province, in particular, the city of Wuhan. And they're also showing the deployment of supplies. But here's the reality that we're hearing from folks who are on the ground, is there is still a dire need to get those supplies. So while they may be going into the province, several nurses and doctors tell us they're not necessarily getting to the hospitals and to the front line, so to speak. So they feel as though they are going into this battle, as they put it, without the armor, without the hazmat suits, without the protective masks. And we're hearing more and more cases of healthcare workers being inflicted with this virus. In fact, one nurse tells us that some 30 of her colleagues, healthcare workers within the same hospital, have contracted the virus and they're either in intensive care units or they've been sent home to be medicated and to be quarantined. And she says that's the reality and that's the fact that they need more medical personnel now because of this. Because after all, Julia, who's going to be treating the patients if the doctors themselves are sick? Yeah, you raised some great points again, David. Great to have you with us. Just stay there for a moment because I do want to bring uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta in. Sanjay, great to have you with us as well. Uh, I've read an astonishing amount of misinformation, fake information on the Internet about this specific virus. And people get flu every year. Can you just give us a sense of what we need to know here and how worried people should be at this stage? Yeah. Well, look, you know, this is still a relatively new virus that we're talking about, you know, just about a month into things. So we're still gathering information. You're absolutely right, Julia. There has been some misinformation that's gone around. But I think to your point, the context does matter a bit here in, in terms of uh, comparing this to something like flu. Uh, right now, you know, you, you look at the numbers worldwide with regard to coronavirus, and I think it's around uh, uh, close to 10,000 confirmed infections right now. Uh, two, uh, just over 200 people have died of of this. So, you know, th those those types of numbers are concerning in terms of the fatality ratio. Compared, though, to flu season in the United States alone, there's already been 8,200 deaths, uh, 15 million cases. The, the real question, I think, sort of that's starting to arise among public health officials when you look at the coronavirus is, uh, could it, is it possible there are many more people out there who, in fact, uh, do, have been infected but either have no symptoms or, or minimal symptoms, therefore are not being officially diagnosed? We don't know the answer to that yet. But I think any time, Julia, you have a, a novel virus, and I've reported on several of these over the years, I think the, the question uh, the public health officials always ask themselves, look, is this going to continue to mutate and become increasingly transmissible and increasingly lethal? Uh, you know, that, that's the concern. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't know enough yet to say that for sure, but it's looking less likely as more time goes on. 
You know, it's interesting that the standout for me in the last 24 hours, the, the World Health Organization praising China for the immediacy of the response, particularly when we go back and compare to the response that we saw during SARS. And a lot of the comparisons that are being made today is with the SARS outbreak when we go back to, what, 2003. How fair is that comparison in your mind? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. I mean, there, there's no there's no question that there there has been a, a a quicker response. I think this this time around. Although, you know, if you start looking at uh, some of what we've heard from China and comparing it to the data coming out of medical journals, it does appear that this outbreak, coronavirus outbreak, started earlier than we were originally led to believe. Uh, I think David can can check me on this, but I think, you know, we originally thought it was going to be middle to end of December when this started. We now know the first patient was diagnosed December 1st. And interestingly, Julia, that patient had no contact with this animal market that we heard so much about. Uh, It's possible that there was transmission in other ways, even human to human transmission earlier than we thought. So in, in some, some ways, you know, you'd say, well, we did not get the information as early as we should have. But as compared to SARS, uh, certainly far earlier. Some of these measures they've, they've taken that David's been reporting on, these lockdowns in, 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 that, in, in Wuhan and the surrounding cities, have been very aggressive strategies. And it was a little curious as to why such aggressive strategies initially. But now, given the time frame that we have clarified through the medical journals, maybe it makes a little bit more sense. So earlier, yes. Early enough, hard to say. Remember, you can travel with the virus in your body before you develop symptoms for several days, maybe even a couple of weeks. And as you know, Julia, you can circumnavigate the globe uh, several times during that time period. That's what makes this so challenging. That's what turns an infection anywhere into an infection everywhere. That's why the public health officials have zeroed in on that. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. We're far more mobile than we are than we were back then. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, fantastic to have your insight with us, and uh, thank you for joining us. And David Culver, of course, over in Beijing. Thank you both. All right, let's move on. Today's the day. 1,316 days since Britain's EU referendum. I didn't do the maths on that. The UK is set to Brexit at the stroke of 11 p.m. local time this evening. A divorce of global proportions. Max Foster is here. Max, great to have you with us. I mean, you've reported on this throughout since the referendum. Years. Pre-Brexit, we were talking about Britain leaving the EU. (laughs) We've got the days there as well. I said earlier, a day of celebration for some, commiseration for others, but the truth is actually not much changes here and yet it is a momentum momentous yeah day. so we've got this transition period those eu rules will still apply many of the laws the way we th- see things operate will be the same and it's very weird and eerie don't you think here I in london it. where this momentous moment we've been building up for so long it just everything's just plodding along as usual climatic yeah but maybe that's a good thing actually because yes. carry on regardless needs to be the case i guess when we had that election result and it was clear that brexit was happening the remainers resigned themselves to this but it's interesting outside parliament last night there was effectively a vigil of remainers really marking the moment they feel still very saddened about this and they're also obviously looking to the next stage as well where the big challenge is going to be at the end of the year and potentially another hard brexit as they see it at the end of the year so they don't think it's over anyway 
Do you think actually the only way to unite the country at this stage is to make Brexit work, quite frankly? Because whether you're on the Remainer side or you're a lever, um, you're no less patriotic about wanting the country to do well, whatever the circumstance. I think you're right. I think um, a lot of Remainers, you know, they have just resigned themselves to it and they're now trying to look at the best way forward. And that's going to be message, the message coming from Boris Johnson tonight. He's going to talk about this being the dawn of a new era. He's not focusing on the past. He's very much looking towards the future and Britain's independence. But you speak to a lot of arch Brexiteers and they t- do talk about this sort of um, world where Britain uh, retains all its own powers and the economy can boom and go out and uh, mark its own trade deals. But I think that in the medium term, a lot of econ- economists are obviously very worried about how you get to the point where there is a trade deal. And also some economists now warning that whilst uh, Britain might want this deal with the US, actually the European Union have a deal with the US already and that might get in the way of the UK deal and there's so many complications coming up but actually probably today we have to just look at it as a historic moment for the continent and give the Brexiteers their day because they've been campaigning for this for you know decades you could argue and this is their moment. years in the making. Very quickly where's the cat? The cat I was there. Number 10 down the street. I wanted to see the cat. Not that I don't want to see you too Max. I where is nothing the cat? personal but the cat went in as soon as you arrived. Sorry, outrage of monumentous proportions. I'm going to be here for a few hours, <laughs> so hopefully it'll, um, it'll come back out again. Max, thank you, Max Foster there. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in Kiev meeting at President Volodymyr Zelensky. Mr Pompeo is the first high-level Trump administration official to visit Ukraine since the House impeached the US president. He used the opportunity to highlight the United States' commitment to security assistance and diplomacy. Nothing like timing. The Australian capital territory is under a state of emergency as widespread bushfires move quickly across the region. Authorities say the decision was based on predictive mapping throughout the weekend. Officials are asking everyone in the area to complete a bushfire survival plan. OK, you're watching First Move live from number 10 Downing Street. More to come on the show, but for now, the business of Brexit. Just hours to go until the UK formally leaves the EU. What does it mean for businesses? Well, I'll speak to the vice president of the Confederation of British Industry. What assumptions are they making at this stage? And Amazon rejoins the trillion-dollar market cap club. Plenty more to come. You're with CNN. Welcome back to First Move Live from number 10 Downing Street. After a tumultuous three and a half years, for Britain, Brexit Day is finally here. The UK formally leaving the EU in just nine hours' time. I tell you what, though, UK stocks haven't done too badly since that 2016 Brexit referendum. Take a look at this. The FTSE is up nearly 16% since that June 23rd vote, helped along, of course, by a relative weakening in the currency. UK stocks, meanwhile, falling today, along with most global stock markets, too. There's still so many uncertainties, so many questions about where the coronavirus outbreak goes from here. Goldman Sachs said today that the virus could shave half a percent off US GDP in the first quarter and around half a percent from Chinese growth in 2020. So that's one analyst estimate. Let's get another. Robert Buckland joins us now. He's head of global equity strategy for City. Robert, fantastic to have you with us. I know your team published their coronavirus assessment report today. Equities set to remain vulnerable, particularly in the Asia region, in your view, until we see this outbreak stabilise. Talk us through your thoughts here. 
you hear me? No, I'm not sure uh, Robert yes, can, can hear me? me there. We're going to try and uh, see if we can bring him... Oh, Robert! The joys of live TV. Robert, this is Julia. Can you hear me? No? Okay. <laughs> We are going to see whether we can get him back. His report suggests, as I was mentioning there, actually, that equities will remain vulnerable until we see the outbreak and the spread of this stabilise, which, of course, at this stage, it's tough to gauge at this moment. We will try and get him back and talk through his assessment. But he was suggesting, when you break it down, that luxury airlines, autos, autos, given that China is 30% of global demand, will all remain vulnerable. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing as far as futures are concerned again as we've said around the world some cautiousness remaining for equity investors i believe robert can now hear me robert can you hear me yes julia i can yes oh fantastic the wonders of modern technology i was just doing your job actually and talking about the details in your um, coronavirus report just talk me through your main assessment at this stage we appreciate it's early days with this virus outbreak but you believe equities will remain vulnerable until we see this virus stabilize yeah, a lot of people are taking the lessons from the SARS outbreak of 2003. Mm. I'm a little bit reluctant of pushing that one too far. But it, 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 effectively what happened is that Asian markets didn't stabilise until the number of infections had peaked. Uh, it's clearly too early to say that we're going to see that right now. So I think markets will remain vulnerable until we see some, uh, some idea that the, that the virus is contained. I was just mentioning that you've isolated specific sectors, the luxury sector, the airline sector, the auto sector, given the reliance on Chinese demand here. We've already seen significant repricing in these sectors already. They're significantly lower. At what point, perhaps, does this become a buying opportunity for investors, given the pullback that we've already seen? Yeah, I mean... It used to be good to own stocks with exposure to China. That was a good trade to have on in markets last year. Now it's turning out to be a bad thing. Again, I don't think those stocks will find a, a solid base until we've seen some signs that the virus is being contained. You were already suggesting for the global growth outlook that we would be pretty stable, actually, on the, the growth that we saw in 2019. To what extent yeah. was that predicated on seeing stimulus kicking in in China and that growth stabilising too? Because I know you've also shaved your forecast for growth in China. How material is that? Sure. We've cut our GDP growth forecast, so our economic growth forecast for China, from 5.8% this year down to 55 So it's not a huge cut. I think the other thing we have to remember is the Chinese economy is so important nowadays for the world economy. It's 17% of the world economy right now. Around SARS in 2003, it was just four. So, yes, we've got a similar situation to SARS, but the economy is so much more important for the rest of us now than it was back then. That's such a great point. It's four times the size of the pie. I want to set that aside for a second and talk to you about the UK. It's obviously the formal day where the UK leaves the EU today. What's your assessment of, of UK assets at this moment? Do you see value? Well, it's an interesting point. You know, I always sort of think markets can think about one thing at a time. And 
Uh, markets aren't thinking about Brexit today. Uh, markets are thinking about the virus in Asia today. But in general, uh, I think that we think that there are remain challenges ahead for the UK economy and the UK markets in terms of dealing with Brexit. Of course, there are lots of negotiations that have to be done on trade and so on. So we do still think that Brexit will be a drag on the UK economy as we head out of this year into next year, just because of the short-term uh, um, imponderables that we have uh, ahead of us. Yeah, you even predict very quickly a recession, potentially a mild one in 2021. Robert, we'll yeah. get you back to discuss that. Robert Buckland, the head of global equity strategy at City. Thank you for bearing with us there. You are watching First Move. The opening bell is next. And there is plenty more to come here from number 10 Downing Street in London. We're back after this. first move. I'm Julia Chastley live from number 10 Downing Street in London. That was the opening bell back on Wall Street, of course. Lots of cheering and shouting, but we do have a lower open for the U.S. majors this morning. Stocks again under pressure. That nervousness that comes as China says that the coronavirus cases have risen above 9,000. More than 200 deaths have now been reported. That's the backdrop here. But U.S. stocks, of course, have had a pretty volatile week already. Let's put things into perspective here if we can. U.S. majors are on track for their fifth straight monthly gain for the year so far. The Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq are up 1% or more. The Nasdaq, in fact, is higher by more than 3.5%. So some context here, I think, worthwhile understanding. What about here in London, though? Well, I can tell you uh, the UK is officially leaving the European Union today, three and a half years after the country decided to withdraw from the blog. And it dominates the newspaper headlines here in London, despite what else is going on in the world. I've got a couple of them for you here. The Times this morning, the headline says Brexit, it's time. Of course, 11 p.m. this evening will be the moment when the UK leaves the EU. No bong, of course. We've got Big Ben, but no bong because it's uh, under repairs at the moment, which is, uh, yes, saying something. Not going to comment further on that. And The Guardian as well. Small island. After 47 years, Britain leaves the EU at 11 p.m. tonight. The biggest gamble in a generation. And there you have it, the White Cliffs of Dover. Lots of different sides of uh, people celebrating and commiserating. It is the end of Britain's membership of the EU. But what does this mean ultimately for businesses going forward? We're now joined by the Vice President of the Confederation of British Industry, Lord Karen Billamoria. He's also the founder of Cobra Beer. Lord Billamoria, fantastic to have you on the show. Can I just ask what this day means to you personally, both as a representative of, of the business and, and British industry, but also as an entrepreneur and, and the founder of a big business here in the UK too? Uh, the CBI uh, represents 190,000 businesses employing 7 million people in the United Kingdom. And business now for almost four years. We've got to remember the referendum was announced in February 2016. So almost four years that has been taken up by Brexit and all the uncertainty that it has uh, caused. Now we are at the stroke of 11 o'clock this evening, we're leaving the European Union. So there is that certainty. 
And what business never wanted was a cliff edge or a no-deal Brexit, and that was removed, uh, potentially happening on the 31st of December 2019. Now we've got to look ahead and we've got to work with government and help government to have the best possible uh, trade deal, a deal on all aspects of our relationship with the European Union uh, in this coming year in 2020, which has to be done by the 31st of December. So that's our objective, is to support government to make sure we get the best possible deal for business, for our economy and for our citizens. Is that how you're operating now? And that's what you're saying to those businesses that you represent. They have to now operate under the assumption that as of December 30th, 2020, the transition period will not continue and there will be some form of alternative arrangements in place. Because to your point, the hope was to remove some of the uncertainty. But for, for many people looking at this, actually, there's still plenty of uncertainty between then and now. Well, there is no running away from the fact that that uncertainty still exists. And we have got this year in which to form this agreement with the European Union. The government has said that it wants to get it done by the end of this year. And we're in a very good starting point because we are already completely aligned with the European Union in this transition period um, as a starting point. And government has said that they want a close working relationship with the European Union. It makes up 50 percent of our trade. Our biggest single trading partner is the United States of America with 18% of our trade. And then the rest of the world in the Commonwealth makes up about 10% of our trade, including countries like India. So we want to be able to maintain the 50% of our trade with the European Union and all the other relationship we have. People talk about trade, but it's also education, the research collaborations, the students that come from the European Union. There are 130,000 students at British universities from the European Union. And then, of course, medicine, security, space. Every aspect of our lives has been so intertwined for almost 50 years now. We've got to ensure that we have this close relationship going forward, but also with Britain being able to do what it wants to on the global stage, uh, operating as the government wants it to in the future. So I think uh, we've got a, a job to do and government is there with business supporting it. You make a great point, and the services sector is the lion's share of the economy in this country, and I'm 80%. not sure enough time is dedicated to... to yes, exactly, it's, it's dedicated to talking about it, quite frankly. But I just want to get your view on the bold decision, I think, from the government to continue to work with China's Huawei over 5G. Do you worry that that in any way prejudiced reaching some kind of trade agreement or relationship with the United States in the coming months too? Because to your point, it is our single largest trading partner if we're talking about one country individually. Has the relationship been so, damaged in your mind or not? So one has to look at these things in the whole. The government made an on-balance decision weighing up the pros and cons about Huawei and said that it wanted to go ahead given very strict conditions and how Huawei would operate in the 5G space here in the UK. And remember, there are two other international companies involved in it as well from around the world. It's not just Huawei. And in terms of the relationship with the United States, we have a really, really close, special relationship. This is not just platitudes. It's real. The United States and the UK are hugely close partners. One deal like this is not going to influence the whole relationship that we have between our two countries which goes back a long way and has a huge future ahead of us. So I don't think it's going to jeopardize things. I think um, it's been made very clear by the U.S. government. They want a good trade deal with the United Kingdom, as do we. An optimistic viewpoint there from Lord Karen Billamoria. So great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that.
We're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, as the UK leaves the EU, Prime Minister Boris Johnson promises to unite the country. The question is, can he? We'll get some insight from his father, the former MEP Stanley Johnson, joins us next. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. When the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson leads the UK out of the EU this evening, he will complete his promise of getting Brexit done. But his next task may be infinitely harder as he aims to unite a fractured country. Brexit has split Britain right down the dinner table as families have been divided between Remain and Leave, including the family of Prime Minister Boris Johnson himself. Joining me now is someone with perhaps just a little insight into what that feels like. Stanley Johnson is a former member of the European Parliament and father of the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Stanley, fantastic to have you on the show. Great to speak with you once again. Can I just ask if you've spoken to the Prime Minister today? I just wonder what today feels like for him. If you can give us some insight, I would appreciate it. Well, I haven't spoken to him. I sent him a message. Yes, it is a, it is a day, isn't it? I say to myself, well, this is a day where I am tinged with a certain regret. I spent years and years and years in Brussels, both in the European Commission and in the European Parliament. Mm. But it is, of course, tinged with optimism, too, because I, as you know, supported Boris once he... Well, once we got the vote, and I absolutely supported him as he campaigned in this last last weeks and months, and I was thrilled that he got a clear mandate last December. So, yes, it's it's optimism with a little little bit of uh, you know hindsight. I did think it was a good thing to have done. I enjoyed doing it, but we got to we got to move on, and we are moving on. In no question about it, we got the big the big issues to tackle now. Forget about Brexit. You've got. You've got climate change to tackle, you've got biodiversity to tackle, things I've been working on for years and years and years. You know, it's interesting. I speak to the business community here and they say that they want to be part of the negotiation going forward with the EU. Does, does the Prime Minister listen to people? Is he a good listener and will he take on board their advice? How do you see him approaching and tackling what's going to be a tough negotiation over the coming months? I wonder, how, I wonder how tough it really is. I mean, as your last, your last speaker, the brilliant Lord Kilmoria said, you know, we do have already an alignment of almost important in, in, in all important areas. Yes, of course, we have to have the freedom to diverge. There's no point in having sovereignty if you don't have the freedom to diverge. But what is the reason to diverge? The reason to diverge is if you feel you must have different standards, whether these are product standards, process standards, or whatever. I would never put trade above all, you know, in, over environment, for example. I wouldn't do that. So, yes, if we have to say we want to have you know, something which will mean a barrier to trade, well, so be it. So I think, I, but I don't think that's going to be very often. It might happen in one or two cases. But I, am, I don't honestly think this negotiation over the next 10 months, 11 months, is going to be that difficult. You think, without doubt, that the UK will come out of this negotiation in 10 months with some form of deal with the EU? You're confident of that? I absolutely... I absolutely do. And, and, and what will that deal be? It'll, it, it'll be, you know, no tariffs, no quotas. 100% sure that that is where we will come out. And if there is a, a divergence, then, of course, there may be some, some you know, some, some need for checks on uh, the borders. But on the whole, I think we will be not far. In, in 10 months' time, we will be not far from where we are today. 
know, Stanley, I made the point earlier, and, and you've made it, you didn't simply didn't want to talk about Brexit over the, the Christmas dinner table this year. The Prime Minister <laughs> has promised to unite the country. First question, how was that Christmas dinner, by the way, and, and did you talk about Brexit? And the second thing is, is making a success of Brexit ultimately the only way to bring the Remainers and the Leavers together in your mind? Yes, well, Christmas dinner is always is always good. I mean, as I said once on another occasion, the, the you know the most important issue at Christmas dinner is do you have breast or do you have thigh? But leaving leaving that <laughs> leaving that aside, leaving leaving that aside, I think it's absolutely clear that people of all natures, of every camp, do want to get get Brexit behind them. Brexit is behind us. In reality, it is behind us. I spend my time nowadays not thinking about breakfast. I spend my time thinking about key issues which confront us. For example, I'm sorry to say, sorry to come back on this. You know, here we are faced with global warming. We've got Britain, the UK is going to be chairing the vital conference in Glasgow in November this year. We need to get an agreement on how to tackle it. Look at, look at Australia going up in flames. You can't put that all down to global warming. But believe me, we are in real, real trouble. And I think the leadership which Boris has shown in actually dealing with the Brexit issue will be multiplied many times as he tackles, uh, helps the world tackle, you know, the climate issue. And I, I put the nature protection issue in that as well. You know, you raise such a great point here. I mean, there are plenty of people here who look at the numbers simply and say, actually, the prime minister could be in power for 10 years here. Whatever policy he decides to, to choose, and let's do something that's close to your heart, I know, and that's climate change and sustainability. He could fundamentally reshape the nation and our energy use and renewables over that time period. Is that a priority for him? Are you personally pushing for that? Because that is something where the UK could lead going forward. Do you know, Julia, it's lovely to hear you, lovely to hear you asking that question, lovely to hear you tilting this conversation in that direction. Yes, I think that Britain can, can do a huge amount there. For example, what is really going to change, uh, change the issue here? It's when the City of London, when the CBI, and you've just had the president of the CBI on, when they really get together and say, well, we can do it, and the way we can do it is by mobilizing the financial and industrial and engineering and technical innovation capacity of this country and many other countries so that they do do what needs to be done. On, on climate change and nature protection. It is doable. Yes, yes, that's why I think Boris is so good, because he can not only speak optimistically, but he can drive optimism so it becomes you know, a, a dominant motive of the way a country does things. Yeah, I do hope the Prime Minister's listening. Uh, final question and just a very quick one. Can I ask what the, the best advice is that you've ever given the Prime Minister? Yes, I think the best advice I would give to the Prime Minister is, above all, do other things. Above all, concentrate on music, concentrate on painting, concentrate on literature. Keep your mind absolutely full of the things which really count. Politics is a regrettable necessity, but the real priorities in life lie elsewhere. Be balanced. Sir, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Stanley Johnson there, former member of the European Parliament and father of the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Thank you, sir, once again for joining us. All right, I'm going to take you now from number 10 Downing Street to Western Africa. Yes, where Django, a female-led venture capital firm, is pledging $66 million to support technology startups. I spoke with the CEO, Fatou Mata. Yeah. 
at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Here she is. You're a young global leader. What does that mean and what does that bring you in terms of benefits for a platform that you present? Well, it means a lot because I think beyond having a track record of achievement professionally, what young global leaders truly share in common is to be committed for the betterment of the society. You're winning awards and accolades left, right and centre. It's a hugely inspiring story. Where does that come from? Where does this come from and your desire to do good and your initial investment and energy and technology and innovation. You know, I'm, I'm Senegalese. I grew up and I had some breakthrough in my life. One of them being having access to education myself. So actually one of the teachers told my mom she loves school. She'll have to put her in a good school. And I keep having excellent scholarships that get me to, you know, great business schools in Europe. And then technology also created tr so many tremendous opportunities for myself that I'm also very excited to use it to create opportunities for the many. Because honestly, I believe talent is very equally distributed, especially in Africa, but opportunities aren't, especially access to capital. Talk to me about being a, an angel investor. Talk to me about the work that you're doing, looking for investment opportunities here and fostering technology for good. It's so important. So, you know, my journey started actually as a tech entrepreneur. Um, I decided I was, you know, done with uh, advising listed companies in Europe uh, and I needed to do something for my continent. So first, I, I really wanted to build platforms. And then I realized that so many other entrepreneurs are building amazing platforms that are even more essential than an e-commerce marketplace. So I decided to help backing them. So I started Angel Investing in 2015. Then I raised the first fund and now we are up to a second fund, which where we'll commit. 60 million euros to backing African entrepreneurs across Africa, across stages, so from seed to, to growth, from 50,000 euros to 5 million euros, with a very strong focus and pledge on women. We are committing to invest 50% of our proceeds in startup founded, co-founded or benefiting women. Where are you going to be in 10 years' time? Well, in 10 years' time, I hope we will have funded, you know, dozens of startups that will have created thousands of jobs, but more excitingly, providing all the services that I mentioned that will not come if we continue at the current trend. So good schools, good healthcare systems, global access to, to market for SMEs and global access to finance with so many jobs created for young people and women, and then I can even retire. Fatima Taba, there. Fantastic conversation. You're watching First Move. We'll be right back. Welcome back to First Move with a look at our global movers today. Shares of Aston Martin are soaring in London trading. The luxury car maker getting a more than $650 million bailout from Formula One billionaire Lawrence Stroll. IBM shares also higher in the session. The CEO, Ginny Rometty, stepping down in April after eight years at the helm. Amazon shares also higher by over 8% after reporting more than $3 billion worth of profits for the fourth quarter. Revenues soared some 21%. Amazon's market cap, in fact, has once again surpassed $1 trillion. Claire Sebastian joins us now and has been trawling through the numbers here, the fruits of much speedier shipping here. Claire, I think coming through in these numbers, never mind anything else, strength across the board. Talk us through it. 
Yeah, particularly impressive that they, they managed to grow revenue and profits, Julia. Don't forget, uh, three months ago, we were talking about a decline in profits because of all this spending. Because don't be fooled, they continue to spend big uh, on shipping. Take a look at the evolution uh, of their shipping costs over the past three years. We're now uh, up at 12.8 billion, 12.9 billion uh, in this current quarter. That's, that's a significant jump over the previous quarter, and especially if you look back three years. But they are growing revenue uh, around that, and that is really what investors are looking at, at plus the fact that they are actually keeping control on these costs. They said they were going to have a $1.5 billion penalty in this holiday quarter for one-day shipping. They said they actually came in a little underneath that. So it's looking like they're building some efficiency into this one-day shipping project, which is not even a year old, uh, don't forget, although they do expect to spend a billion dollars in the current quarter. But this is really a behemoth, Julia. The fact that they can add this kind of market gap gain uh, when they're already this big uh, is, 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 is extraordinary. AW US is the other side of the business. Don't forget, that's the majority uh, of profits, about 67% of profits, while only about 12% of sales. That saw growth of 34%, which came in uh, above estimates. And Prime, which is recurring revenue, the subscription service, uh, which has all of those benefits, including one-day delivery, they now say they have 150 million members. This is the first update uh, we've had in a while, and it just shows that the loyalty to Amazon continues to increase. Yeah, I'd say the only blot on the horizon here, of course, Whole Foods, bricks and mortar, not quite uh, going well for these guys. But I do want to ask you, Claire, about coronavirus. Did they say anything about this, given that they're shipping things all over the world and clearly have operations all over the place? Yeah, no, Julia, this didn't actually come up on the call. And this is uh, somewhat rare, given the, what we've seen from other companies this week. Uh, Amazon perhaps not so impacted because it's not such a big uh, deliverer to that region. But we've seen the likes of Apple, which uh, has pretty much a double whammy effect. They not only uh, see China as 15% of their revenue, but they're also, uh, they do a lot of their manufacturing there. They said uh, that they've closed one store. They're doing deep cleaning in other stores. Uh, they are really watching this to see how, how far this will go. A similar double whammy, actually, uh, for Tesla, they just opened their Shanghai factory. They're now having to close it. They say uh, for about a week or a week and a half, that could hit their profitability. China is also Tesla's uh, biggest market outside of the U.S. And we're seeing uh, a lot of store closures across the board. McDonald's, the likes of Pizza Hut, uh, Ikea. Uh, this is a watch item even, uh, Julia, for Boeing, which is the U.S. biggest manufacturing uh, exporter. It still remains to be seen uh, how much these companies will, will see their profits hurt by this. That will depend on the macro impact. Goldman Sachs came out today uh, and said that China's GDP will be hit in the, in the, over the course of the year, and that could spill over even to U.S. GDP. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. And, of course, in Washington, U.S. senators are gearing up for that key vote in the impeachment trial. Our coverage will continue, but for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. See you next hour. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.